in tonight. I only had two nights to speak this time, so we're condensing the book into two nights. Now, this may not be a book that you're familiar with, but hopefully if you're here last week and this week, you'll have a, a really good taste of the richness of this book. Um, maybe a challenge tonight for me to prove to you that this book is very rich. Don't let my words get in the way of God's word because Haggai is a very rich book and it has a message for us today that I hope you'll see tonight. Um, again, in this historical context, we want to place Haggai the prophet in the post-exile period, okay, which means that the Jews have already experienced the Assyrian captivity, they've gone through the Babylonian captivity, and now because of the decree of Cyrus the Persian in 538, they're able to return to Jerusalem, and we found uh, the temple foundations laid through Ezra the prophet in 537, and we are in 520 tonight. This is where we're going to focus, and if you're interested, 445 was where the walls of Jerusalem were built under Nehemiah's direction. But this year, 520, is where we'll be focusing on tonight. In chapter 1, we find the people of Israel in a state of complacency and apathy. Specifically concerning the things of the Lord, because they were very excited about building their own houses. They were very busy building their own little minor kingdoms. Uh, but the Lord gave them a wake-up call. He's saying, look, it's time to build the Lord's house. Okay, stop pursuing your own dreams and follow the instruction of the Lord. Again, the temple foundations had been laid many years before, and yet the Lord's house, the temple, had just been abandoned pretty much. His house had laid desolate. So the prophet Haggai was sent by God to the people. He was to wake them up out of their apathy towards the temple and to challenge their mixed-up priorities that we looked at last week. We saw that God called them, called them out and showed them how their lack of production was directly attributed to their lack of obedience. Surprisingly, the people responded favorably. They obeyed the Lord, which is not always the case. Uh, but in this case, it was. And with a fresh perspective, they had some great results. Great progress was made. So by the time we get to chapter 2, the temple is being rebuilt now. And the important difference was that, quote, the Lord was with them. That's what we found at the end of chapter 1, that because of their repentant hearts and turning back and focusing their priorities on the Lord, the Lord was with them. And I think it's because the people were now with the Lord. So again, 520, it's the second year, okay, second year of King Darius, as the Bible describes it. Last week in chapter 1, we looked at uh, the first message that was given on day one of Haggai. And by day 24, the temple was, re- was in the process of rebuilding. Now tonight, we're going to look at chapter 2, which takes place in the seventh month. And we're on the 21st day, and we're going to see the second message delivered by Haggai. And then on day 24 of the ninth month, he gives his third and fourth message. Okay, So we're looking at message 2, 3, and 4 tonight, all in chapter 2 made this chart to, to kind of get your head around the book. And um, you'll see that all this happens within just a few months <clears throat> of that second year of King Darius, okay? Um, again, there are four messages from God that Haggai prophesies to the people. 
and we're going to look at three tonight. Listen, these, these are very rich messages. Um, again, I, I organized this study to be two parts, but the, the further I, I dug into this second chapter, it is very clear, very clear that I could have easily made three sermons out of chapter two. Just very rich. And not to worry, I, I'm not going to preach three sermons tonight. I, I'm going to try my best to contain this to one sermon but I think as, as we go through this, you'll see that I'm just hitting the highlights. I'm, I'm just pulling out some important things along the way that I think we should hear. But in each of the cases, we could pause and really dig deep. There's lots of truths here. And I hope by the end of the night, you'll realize how rich a book the Haggai is. It's scripture. It's for our profit. It's the word of God. All right. So there was a pretty big event this week, right? What happened on Monday? The eclipse. All right. So how many people got to, to see the eclipse? I guess I should say partial eclipse, right? Because here in Valonia, we only saw a partial eclipse. Now, I know that some of you ventured out and got to see the full eclipse. So how many people actually got to see the full eclipse? All right, Michael's up there. I know the Canes. Oh, you didn't get to go? Okay. So is Michael and Heather the only two that saw the full eclipse? All right, well, if... If you missed the eclipse, go ahead and check the screens out. I'll, I'll, so, I'll show you what you missed. And that's, that's pretty much what you got. <laughs> All right, how many people looked up Monday? Looked up at the sky? Okay, I did. I was out there. Brother Dan had uh, secured some, some glasses for us. And, uh, well, actually, probably for him and Julie, but we all got to partake in that. It was, it was pretty amazing. But how many people looked up and didn't use your eye protection? E- even for just like a split second. Anybody? Yeah? Well, this guy did. <laughs> Look, most of us, I would venture to say that there's probably a good majority of us here that, that probably snuck a peek at the sun, right? Well, it's like telling your kids, or I guess adults in this case, to not look right? Don't look. And what's the very first thing they're going to do? They're going to look, right? I mean, you might as well not even say don't look because it's just instinctive. It's a reaction to look when you're told not to look. But incidentally, I, I find the total eclipse to be fascinating. I mean, I'm a science guy. I like science. Uh, Michael and I talk about it all the time. The total eclipse is so fascinating to me. I'm not sure if, you, if you're aware of it, but did you know that we are the only planet in the entire solar system that experiences a total eclipse? Of all the planets and all the moons that are orbiting these planets, we're the only one that experiences a full eclipse. Isn't that cool? That's fascinating to me. And, and why is that? Some people would call it coincidence, but if you're a believer, we know that it's not coincidence, it's God's design. Okay, follow me on this. The sun is exactly 400 times further away from Earth than the moon. Okay? So if the moon was a mile, the sun would be 400 miles away. Okay? And the moon is exactly 400 times smaller than the sun. Now you can look it up. This is, this is a fact. Um, the moon's distance from the Earth fluctuates a little bit here and there, but at the time of the eclipse... The moon perfectly lines up with that factor of 400 
to give a perfect total eclipse. Isn't that cool? And it only happens here on Earth in our solar system. We don't know what's going on you know, beyond that. But I, I just find that fascinating. Fascinating. And it's all God's design. So when millions of people were looking up at the sun Monday, they were actually witnessing an amazing display of God's glory to the world. Amen? Whether they knew it or not, God gives these signs in the heavens to display his glory. It's just that so many people choose not to believe. And Paul talks about how creation itself declares the glory of the Lord. And I think this is one of those cases. So for us here in Valonia, around 118 on Monday, it was time to look, right? And as we looked up at, at the S-U-N on Monday, it was a reminder to look up to the S-O-N. And that's what's going on here in chapter 2 of Haggai. On the 21st day of the seventh month, it was time to look for the people of Israel. They were to look up and look within and look ahead to what God was doing. All right, so let's read verse 1 through 3. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to uh, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So this chapter starts off with a little discouragement. Okay, Uh, There were people there present here in the seventh month that actually remembered the glory of the previous temple. They were old enough. There was a certain generation there that actually could remember back to the previous temple and its glory. And they were discouraged now seeing the progress made because it was nothing in comparison to the Temple of Solomon. It just wasn't. Now, I know that sometimes our memories can play tricks on us and, and we can make the past seem better than it actually was. But in this case it's probably accurate. The phase, this phase of the temple would have a very hard time living up to the grandeur of Solomon's temple. Nevertheless, it was still God's house, and they will find quickly that it's God's glory that will make it special. God would fill this place with his glory. Have you ever focused on the past? Just reliving the good old days. I think most of us of a certain age, we, we get to the point where we're just reliving the good old days. If it only could be like so-and-so, right? Man, if we were just like those people, if we were just like it was 20 years ago. Sometimes we wish we can go back. It is important to remember the past, but we have to stay objective on this. We have to remember the good with the bad. Okay? It's not all rosy. It's not always a good pretty picture. We can't live in the past and we can't simply look, pa- look back to past victories and just throw our hands up and say, well, what's the use of trying? I mean, there's no way that we can accomplish the same thing. There's no way that we can live up to the past. So why do we even try? It's easy to look at every new generation and think that, you know, they're just not as dedicated as we were. Maybe they're just not as fervent at for the Lord as the generation before them. But it's often the case that we, we expect them to, to fit a previous paradigm, 
right? And things change. We have to be careful not to measure spirituality with outdated or obsolete metrics as culture changes. So here in verse 4 that we're going to look at, God wants them to take their eyes off the past and look up. He wants them to look to God. And through knowing him and trusting him, it gives tremendous encouragement. Okay? So we're going to see several things here, uh, ways that God encourages us. And first we're encouraged by God's presence. God's presence, verse 4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. God's presence. He says, I am with you, right? And if for nothing else, we're to be encouraged by God's presence in our lives, right? He's with us, and he promises never, never to leave us, never to forsake us. You may have people that have abandoned you in your life. You may have loved ones that are no longer with you because they've passed on from this life. Maybe you feel alone, but just remember that God is always with you. The creator of the universe is with you in an intimate way. And this is what the people needed to hear. No matter what they thought the situation was, no matter how powerful the nations pressed in around them were, God was with them, and they were his chosen people. We are also encouraged by God's promises. Verse 5. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so he reminds them of the promise made coming out of Egypt, right? Specifically the covenant that he had with them. These were his chosen people, the same people. He promised back then to give them a vast number of offspring to make them a great nation. He promised to um, give them land, the land of Canaan. And he promised that through Abraham's descendants, their family would be a blessing to all nations, And his promises, for the most part, have been fulfilled. Maybe they were still doubting how they would be a blessing to all nations. We'll look at that here in a second. But the people here, in this context, beholding this temple that paled in comparison to the past, they might have been doubting now their future. But remember, God's promises are forever. Forever. Here in in verse 5, he again promises his spirit will abide with them. Again, it's just reminding them of the promise of his presence. He said, there is no need to fear. No need to fear. This, this is great comfort. He says, the victory is already won. He has the victory. Not be afraid of the nations around them. Don't be afraid of what the world around them was telling them or how that they should not trust the Lord that they should turn to the idolatry of their neighbors. He said, don't fear, because I have the victory. The Lord of hosts here, this title, 
is used throughout the chapter, okay? And it means the Lord of armies. Now, in your translation, it may say something like Lord Almighty. But in either case, it's pointing to the fact that he is in command. He's the victor. He's the Lord of hosts. And the armies of the world fall at his feet. In verse 7, promises that the temple will one day be filled with his glory. God himself will bring greater glory to this house. He'll bring the glory, not the people. He will. And we're going to come back to this verse here towards the end. Uh, explore it just a little bit more. For now, we're also encouraged by God's provision. Provision, verse 8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, the people were discouraged. Okay? They were working hard. They were trying to be obedient to God's call. Wasn't living up to their expectation, but God reminds them that he is the one who provides. It's not the people. It's not their effort. It's their obedience that's important, and it's the Lord himself, the Lord of hosts, that will provide. It's a promise to us. And he promises, uh, he provides, I'm sorry, he provides for us in ways that are guided by his love, right? He wants what's best for his children. We are his children. He provides for us in the greatest way, specifically when we look at Jesus Christ on the cross. What greater way can God provide for our needs than to send a Savior to die for our sins? So yes, he provides for our physical needs. He says the silver is mine, the gold is mine. God owns all. Everything belongs to God. It's just a matter of where he places it in various stewardships. He provides for our physical needs, and importantly, very importantly, he provides for our spiritual needs. The temple itself, and of course the tabernacle before, was a visible testament to God's presence in the, within the people, right? He, he wanted to show the people that he was there with them, and that he wanted to be in the midst of the people, that he was with the people. But it also represented the necessary atonement for sin. That people such as you and I who are separated from God need in order to reconcile ourselves to God. This atonement that's necessary to restore the relationship. Apart from the atonement, okay, apart from the atonement, which for us Christians is the blood of Jesus Christ, we are at war with God. All right? We're in rebellion. We're far off. We're not near. The blood of Christ is what brings about peace with God. Peace referred here in this verse. Those of us who were far off are now brought near. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, we'll, we'll look at this briefly uh, at our last section. And we'll point out another piece that he provides. Moving on, uh, we'll, we, we approach Haggai's third message to the people, starting in verse 10. And the third message to the people is telling them to look within. Okay? Look within. Here we, we see the need for self-examination. All right? Uh, looking within ourselves to expose our sin. He's given them an examination, and there's two 
questions on the exam. First, regarding holiness. Second, is going to be regarding uncleanliness. Starting in verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Okay? So Haggai first asked the priest if holiness is communicable. Okay? If it's transferable. And the answer is no. Things can be made holy. Alright? But that thing cannot transfer holiness to another just by mere contact. It's the same for us. We as Christians are made holy by God. Okay? In fact, we're, we're made holy at salvation. We're set apart. But it's God alone that sets us apart. And the Holy Spirit alone can change a sinner's heart. We don't become holy through association. For instance, we cannot become holy uh, because we belong to a certain family or a church. Or uh, we associate with certain Christian friends. It doesn't work that way. It's something that's a personal and an individual transaction where we as individuals turn to God in repentance and our sin is exchanged for Christ's righteousness one person at a time. On the other hand, uncleanliness, uncleanliness can be communicable. It's just like a disease. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai said, if one of you, or I'm saying, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. All right? So just like a bad apple can ruin the bunch, or in the context of Israel, just like a little leaven can leaven the entire loaf, so it happens here. Uh, With individuals and with the assembly, it's both true. There cannot be tolerance for sin in your life. Don't find yourself saying, well, it's just not that big a deal. It's just a little something. Don't worry about it. Uh, I'm good in these other categories, but don't, don't talk to me about that little pet sin I do over here on the side because it's just like the leaven. Even a little sin in your life can eventually bring you to destruction. Okay? For the Israelites... Even if one person was undefiled, then that meant that there was sin in the camp, and it had to be addressed. Sin had to be dealt with before it would bring them all down. And so here in verse 14, Haggai is telling them that they as a people, okay, as a nation, they're unclean. The nation of Israel is unclean, and their works are unclean. 
the sins that were addressed in the first message to them in chapter 1 have led to far-reaching consequences. The sin in the camp has spread, and the people and their works are now defiled. So this here uh, brings two questions, okay? Or I, I should say these questions and this contrast between holiness and unholiness brings us to two important truths. And first, we must actively pursue righteousness, okay? It's a pursuit. It's an active response, something that that takes effort. It's us being focused on that goal and not taking our eyes off and keep moving forward, keeping our guard up. We have to actively pursue righteousness. And it doesn't happen by accident. certainly doesn't happen through complacency. Equally and opposite to pursuing righteousness is the fact that we must flee unrighteousness. Flee unrighteousness. It's just like running from a burning building. When you see that word flee, that should conjure up an image of your mind of someone fleeing for their life from a burning building. It's not something that you play around with. Fire is not something that you should see how close you can get to without being burned. Have you ever seen those guys that do the fire eating? Or uh, maybe some of your friends go around and try to put out fire with their fingers? Or uh, maybe you're seeing people jump through rings of fire with motorcycles and that sort of thing? Well, when it comes to sin and the danger there, we're not firemen. We're, we're not those who are going into the fire, okay? You see some people that are well-trained and they have protective equipment and they're going into the fire to try to save and put, put things out. But we're the opposite. We're, we're the people that should be running the opposite direction. As the firemen are going in, we're, we're to be fleeing that burning building, running away to escape to safety. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But flee from these things. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.22 now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, okay? So now Haggai tells them that they are to consider the results. Verse 15. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one came to a grain, a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider... Is the seed still in the barn, even including the wine, uh, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? Has it not borne fruit? Yet from this day on, I will bless you. All right, so what's he saying here? Last week, we, we saw a phrase repeated with that word consider. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And here, 
we see a slightly different version of that. He's saying, do consider, do consider from this day forward. We find it in verse 15, we find it in verse 18. He's saying, consider and compare the results, the results from not following the Lord, where you've been, what's the results been of not following the Lord, and then I want you to compare it to the results of following the Lord. Okay? He says, from this day forward. So he's saying, in the past, before this time, you were unproductive. You were left wanting. Okay? I have been giving you punishment for disobedience and unrighteousness. But he says, consider this in verse 18. From this day, this 24th day of the ninth month, this day, things will change. All right? See, because of your repentance, because of your change of heart, change of perspective, your obedience, from this day forward, things will change because I'm with you. And he says, now, to confirm this, to confirm that, that the Lord is behind this, he asks him that question. He says, is the seed still in the barn? So, again, what does that mean? Well, when you really dig deep and study in this, uh, you'll find the, the time that this uh, message was given, it was uh, well past the time that they would be planting. Okay? The seed was no longer in the barn. It was out in the field. It was planted. There was nothing else for the people to do. Okay? They had already planted the seed. It was gone, and yet they've had no production. They've been unfruitful. Okay? So he's saying, even though there's nothing for you to do, the seed is already left, from this day forward, you're going to bear fruit. And there's no other explanation other than God himself and his power. It's a way of glorifying God. It's been unfruitful, but from today on, things are going to be different because I will bless you. And again, it's because they had already examined themselves. They found themselves to be guilty. They repented. They confessed. They cleansed themselves of unrighteousness. And the Lord is now going to bless. And it's the same for you and I. It really is. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Okay? So look within. Confess and cleanse yourself of whatever sin you find. Pursue righteousness, and you'll find God's blessing. Finally, here in Haggai's fourth message to the people, he tells them to look ahead. Look ahead. Starting in verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So here in these verses, 
God is giving the people one more means of encouragement. And of course, it's for us too. He's encouraging them. Do you spend too much time looking back? Do you spend too much time looking around? We have to remember to look ahead. And when we do, when we look ahead, we do so with great expectation. We expect great things because God has promised great things. Now, this last message was specifically given to Zerubbabel here. And it it actually looks outward to the times in the future, the last days. And it's got a really big messianic theme here. Now, you need to look no further than the Bible to know how this whole movie ends, right? I mean, spoilers, we've already seen the end of the movie. We know that God is victory. Uh, If you haven't read the book in in its entirety, I can go ahead and spoil it for you and, and tell you that God wins. And sorry if I spoiled it, but believe me, you want to know now versus later. You want to know that God is the victor because if you're not careful, you'll wait too late. And it has eternal consequences. So I want to look at this last section and, and keep in mind, okay, keep in mind what we've already seen in verses 6 through 9 as we, we look at this. They all kind of go into the same picture here. And first we see God shaking things, okay? Now, again, back in verse 6, I told you we look at it again. He says, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And, of course, here that, that phrase is repeated again. Now, if you study the Bible, this is an exact quote, an exact quote that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. Okay, let me read it for you. I, I love this, this passage. Hebrews 12, 26 through 29. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is going to shake things up. There's all sorts of things that I could say here. I mean, this is a very rich text. But let me just say that what we see around us, the, the people, the flesh, the, the pews, the, the walls, the sky, the ground, These physical things that we see around us will not last. People and governments, nations, cultures, world powers, movements, these are all things that come and go. But only God's kingdom remains. The writer of Hebrews refers to it as God's unshakable kingdom, meaning when God shakes the world as we know it. When he shakes the heaven and earth like a a giant snow globe, okay, all these temporal things that we think are important will just crumble away. 
reminds me of uh, a sandcastle, right? Nice, pretty-looking fortress there in the sand, but you just touch it and it crumbles in your hands. That's the, the idea I see when I hear of God shaking things. And only his unshakable kingdom remains. So take heart. Uh, if you're discouraged, take heart. Those things that seem overwhelming, those things that you think will last forever, they won't remain when God starts shaking things up. Remember, verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and the riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. And verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. By, by the Lord referring to Zerubbabel as his signet ring and his chosen one, God was declaring that no matter what happened around him, no matter uh, how many of the nations and the things around him crumbled, that he would have his special protection on him. Zerubbabel would be a part of his redemptive plan. Now, what are signet rings for? Quickly, what are signet rings for? Uh, the quick and short answer is that they were used by kings or powerful rulers as sort of like a signature. Okay? Um, the ring would have a special symbol on it that you could press into a wax seal or a clay tablet, and it would signify that it was from that person and no one else. Okay, so these were very important, and they would be kept very close to the king and very safe as a precious object. And that's what the Lord is saying to Zerubbabel, that he was going to keep him close and keep him protected. He was going to preserve Zerubbabel as God's chosen one. Now, this, this language is very reminiscent of language describing the Messiah, right? You hear this language, you think that he's talking about the Messiah. So is Zerubbabel the Messiah? No. But the point here is that Zerubbabel is in the line, okay? Zerubbabel's seed or his offspring eventually culminates in Jesus Christ. And you can turn to uh, the genealogies of Jesus Christ found in Matthew and Luke, and Zerubbabel's name is right there. So Zerubbabel represents the resumption of God's messianic line. It was interrupted during the exile, and now God's saying, look, you're the start, you're the, the resumption of this line leading to Jesus, and then God will protect him, and he would produce the long-awaited Messiah. Of course, this, by the way, is also the answer to the promise to Abraham, how he promised that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, and that his people would be a blessing to all nations, and that of course, is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. God was telling the people who were now back in their homeland, they were rebuilding the temple, they were trying to be obedient, they were discouraged, they were having trouble. He's saying to look ahead, okay? Look ahead. Yes, you can look back and see how God has kept his promises in the past, and that can be very encouraging. 
You need to look here in the present and make sure that you're pursuing righteousness and doing the things that God wants you to do. But certainly, look ahead to the future and do so with great expectation of what the Lord has in store for his people and his creation. Okay? Jesus is coming back. That's a fact. You can bank on it. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's going to shake up the world as we know it. And only the things securely founded as a part of his unshakable kingdom will remain. So I would encourage you to make sure that you're building in God's unshakable kingdom. Storing your treasures there where moth and rust can't destroy. And not be deceived by the prince of this world. It's time to look to God. And it's time to look to what God has for you to do. You and I, together. We are to be encouraged in this. We are to be challenged by this because we have work to do, just like the people here in Haggai's audience. So this message, this 2,500-year-old message, I believe has relevance today, has relevance for all of us today, right? So the question is, how will you respond? How are you going to respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this challenge and this uh, quick look at Prophet Haggai and his message and the book that you've given us as a part of your scripture. We pray that we will take a look within and examine our lives and make sure that we are living according to your standards. And when we find things that are out of kilter, that we identify a sin in our life. Let us be quick to confess those to you and, and turn from those back to the arms of our Heavenly Father. You're there. You're willing. You're able. You promise to cleanse us of unrighteousness that we just confess them to you. Lord, help us to be encouraged by your presence in our lives. It's precious to us. How you provide for us. How you protect us and how you promise to never leave us, forsake us. Most importantly, help us live with that great expectation, that looking ahead, drawing near the day of the Lord, and being busy about your work and building your kingdom along the way. Ask your blessing on this time, Lord, and we pray that we give you glory in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you for your attendance and faithfulness. Before we dismiss... I did promise you that we get the special treat of a quick business meeting. It'll only take a few minutes, okay? Um, Mary Garrison is retiring after 20 years. We got to celebrate that this morning. And so it's time to vote and install a new church.